Uh, let's open our Bibles now to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to look at actually chapter 20 tonight, but we're just going to kind of um, revisit uh, chapter 19 quickly as we get into chapter 20. If you recall, David now is, is being hunted by Saul. Saul is becoming unhinged more and more as the, as the verses go by. He is becoming more in, in, emboldened and settled in his anger and his hatred toward David, who he was insanely jealous of. Um, remember, David was a warrior, and, and David went out to fight Goliath when Saul, who was the head and shoulders taller than anybody, the scripture tells us, than anybody else. And so he ought to have been the one to size up with Goliath. But it was this young teenage boy who was certainly not that tall, but full of zeal, full of hope, full of faith in God. He goes out with just a sling and a stone without all the armor and all the nonsense. He went out there with a sling and a stone and he, he conquered Goliath and then finished him off with Goliath's own sword. And this made Saul insanely jealous because then the women started singing songs. And if you want to make men jealous of each other, all you've got to do is get women to sing about one of the men. That's a little secret. And that's for free, by the way. You don't have to... All you've got to do is get two guys together, and the women all to be singing about the one guy, and then all of a sudden you've got a problem on your hands. That man is uh, going to be in trouble. And so that's the way it was with Saul. And in chapter 19, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, it says that uh, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But then Jonathan starts to intercede on David's behalf and saying, Dad, what has he done wrong? He's done nothing wrong. He's done all your bidding. He's done all the battles. You know, the men love him. They've rallied around him. He's our leader. What, what are you doing? You know, but, but reason doesn't make a whole lot. Reason means nothing when a man is filled, or any person really, is filled with jealousy and hatred. There's no reasoning with a person like that. You can reason with them with the facts, and they're not going to get it because it's, it's a heart issue. It's, a, it's a, a mental, emotional, heart thing. So, it, you know, facts don't mean anything when somebody's in that state, unfortunately. It has to be the Spirit of God that gets through to them. That's the bottom line. And so David kind of goes to bat for David and says, Dad, what are you thinking? King, what, why are you doing this? He's done nothing wrong. And so finally, in verse 6 of chapter 19, we looked, and, and finally, you know, Saul, after coming to his right mind briefly, talking to his son, he makes an oath. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And this is an oath that he makes. He swore. Okay? He swore. This is an oath. This is a vow. As the Lord lives, David shall not be killed. And then it wasn't long after that that we know that the Philistines came out again. David went out and walloped them with the, with, the, with, the, with the boys from Judah. They go after the Philistines. They wipe them out. And then David now is coming back to the, to the palace. And Saul is in one of his moods. And the evil spirit has come upon him. And so what does David do? Not only a gifted warrior, but a gifted musician. Very un. I just find that really unusual to be a warrior and a musician. Usually musicians are worried about their hands. They don't want to even touch a sword. But here's David as one of those unique individuals. So he conquers in battle. Then he's coming back and he's conquering demons in Saul's life by playing the lyre or the harp. And it's effective. Yet, Saul is so filled with jealousy, he wants to pin him to the wall with a, with a javelin. So 
David gets out of his way, and he goes back to his house. Remember, now he's married to Michal, who is Saul's daughter. And they feign, uh, you know, the, Saul sends messengers to, to take and kill David at this time. And remember, uh, Michal puts the, the teraphim in the bed and covers it up, makes it look like it's David in the bed. And they come, and sure enough, he's not there. And she lets him outside of the wall, you know, lets him down by a rope or whatever outside the wall. And he, he, he skips away, and he goes to Naoth. So they're in Gabeah. If you were to look at a map of Israel, uh, Gabeah would be like right here. And then immediate north, right on the same road, there's a road that went up between, you know, Bethel and Gabeah and Ramah. And a very common road, and north of uh, Gabeah, which is the hometown of Saul, is the hometown of Samuel, which is Ramah. And in Ramah, there was a school of prophets that Saul, or excuse me, Samuel, had established in Naoth. And so David goes to Samuel, one of his few allies that David has right now. There's only two allies that he had. Samuel and Jonathan, Saul's son. Everyone else is against him and are under the influence of the king at, at least. And so David, is he's on the run. And so uh, Saul sends an embassage to capture David at Naoth. The first group of the men come, expecting to carry him away. They ended up uh, under the influence of the Spirit of God, which is a, a wonderful thing, a very supernatural thing. And instead of coming to take David, they, they prophesy before the Lord. And then once Saul hears about that, he sends another group of guys to go capture David. Same thing happens. They get there at Naoth, and they, along with Samuel and everyone else, they begin to prophesy, and, and, and they're just incapacitated. A third group comes, does the same thing. So finally, Saul himself comes, and he finds himself in the same position the Spirit of God coming upon him as he did at the first in the beginning of his reign, if you remember, in chapter 10. God sweetly comes upon him, even though he doesn't deserve it. But guess what? None of us deserve it, do we? None of us deserve the Spirit of God doing anything in our life, much less coming upon us and empowering us for anything. But God does this, and this is the last time, I believe, that God does this in Saul's life. And at this point, his life is going to go downhill, ultimately to destruction. Finally, we get to uh, chapter 31, where he's going to be killed in battle. But Saul was just, and this is kind of like the Lord's wake-up call to Saul. Say, Saul, do you remember your beginnings? Remember when I had Samuel anoint you as king? Do you remember what happened that day as you were looking for your, your dad's donkeys, and you were searching for them, and I told you where they were, and I had you go, and you were anointed by Samuel? Do you remember that, Saul? Do you remember how you prophesied? Remember how sweetly I came upon your life, empowering you for, to be the king? And he does that here again in chapter 19, as Saul is just like a rabid dog, searching, 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 just wanting to just chew David up if he could. And yet the Spirit of God has his way, and Saul is incapacitated once again. And then while that's happening, so let's look at, verse, uh, look at chapter 20. Because this is where it gets interesting. So now, David is there with Samuel in Naoth. And now all these men, Saul's army, portions of his army, and then Saul himself comes. David's like, I got to get out of here. 
These guys want to kill me. It's only a matter of time before the Spirit of God leaves these guys, and they're going to turn into rabid dogs again. So we pick up in chapter 20. It says, then David, and we're just going to read through the first 10 verses, and then we're going to get into it, because it's a lengthy chapter, but at least it'll give us an idea of what we're looking at. It says, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, so he's, fl- he's fleeing from Ramah, Naoth, which is nearby Ramah, it's in the same city. He goes down now south back to Gabeah, which is the hometown of Saul and, of course, Jonathan. So he goes to Jonathan and he flees and he says, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either small or great, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. (coughs) Excuse me. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, Jonathan, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And so Jonathan said to David, Whatever you desire yourself, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, Jonathan, for why should, you bring, why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will, then David said to Jonathan, excuse me, who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And so we're going to stop right there, and we're going to go back to verse 1 again. But what's, what happens in the rest of this chapter is David and Jonathan, they, they work out this means of Jonathan communicating to David by signal, by, by a signal, by a specific thing that he would do out in the field with, with a bow and an arrow. And that would be a signal to David, who would be hiding out in the field, whether or not to come back, whether or not the king really plans to harm him or not. And it had to be that way because Jonathan had already put his life on the line, and we'll see tonight that um, he almost dies by the hand of his own father. And certainly David, is, is, his neck is on the line too. So they had to devise a plan to communicate with each other by using a predetermined sign so that they would know so that David would know whether he was safe or not. Now, as we look into this chapter, it's going to be a pivotal one because we're going to see David and Jonathan saying goodbye to one another. They're going to say goodbye to one another after making vows with one another concerning their love, their loyalty, and also uh, loyalty and love uh, for one another and to their respective families. Remember, Jonathan is from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is the rightful king. David is the rightful king. Jonathan knew this. Jonathan knew this. And so they made a covenant with each other. And we're going to look at that tonight. But as far as David and Jonathan are concerned, this is the last time they believe they're going to see each other. 
until the kingdom. In fact, I labeled, I, I titled this passage tonight, or this chapter, um, Till We Meet in the Kingdom. Till we meet again, or till we meet in the kingdom. And that's exactly what will happen. But we do see later on in, verse, or in chapter 23, Jonathan actually seeks David out one last time. And he strengthens him. But from their perspective at this moment that we're looking at tonight, this is it. This is what's going to separate them as, 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 as friends. I mean, they, they really loved each other. It's a very unique relationship. Very unique. Very rare, even today, to have somebody like this. Each of these men would gladly take the sword for the other. Each of these men would gladly stand up for each other. That was the kind of love that they had. And it wasn't a weird love. See, in a, in a passage like this, and we're going to look at this, you know, in such a perverse culture that we live in, you know, people would be influenced by current events and our culture and think, well, they were, you know, they were somehow inordinately affectioned one toward another. It has nothing to do with that. You and I both know that there can be a love between a, 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 two women and two men that's, that's strictly a, a love out of friendship and out of brotherhood, a sisterhood, whatever that is. It has nothing to do with anything romance. It's nothing, nothing evil, nothing perverse. So, David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? You know, and it's interesting here in verse 1 that, um, again, you know, this is a, a place in Ramah that was established as a school of the prophets. And it's interesting that while Saul is so incapacitated by the Spirit of God, there prophesying with the prophets and his men that he had sent to capture David. You know, ultimately David escapes Naoth and goes back down to Gibeah. But we have to remember again that David only had two allies, and that was Samuel and it was Jonathan. Samuel and Jonathan. Because even though the men of Saul's army loved David and they respected him, who is in command still at this time? It's still Saul, isn't it? So Saul still has command over his armies to go run and chase and find David. And this must have been a great conflict with these men because they respected, they loved David. And the Lord intervened and didn't allow him to be caught. But I find it interesting that as David begins his flight from Saul, God's going to be working it out for his good. He would be on the run for a couple of years. And God was going to work it out for the good because think of all the running that David did. Now, just think about this. You know, there's a, there's a verse that we know, Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I see this in David's life here because as he's running from, he, he knows that area very well now, right? He's running, he's on the run. He knows every little nook, ravine, crevice, rock, crack in the rock. He knows everything because he's been on, on the run for years trying to evade Saul and his madness. And David, wouldn't he know, wouldn't he need to know the terrain very well as he would go into battle when he would ultimately become king? As the Philistines would come down a certain valley, David would know, I've been there. I know exactly where that place is very well. In fact, we're going to, get, we're going to go around this way, and we're going to go around this way. And David knew the land very well. He would need to know that as a king, and he knew it well now because he'd been on the run. Can you see how that works? 
That even when we're in our running, that God can turn around things that we, and we, 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 when we were in distress, he can use those things and turn them around and use them again for our protection and ultimately for his purpose and will for our lives. It's a mystery. You never want to step out and do something, or certainly we wouldn't want to place our, put ourselves in places of where we're vulnerable. But when we do, by God's design somehow, or even through our mistakes, we find ourselves in difficulties. Trust the Lord in it and continue to pray and, and, and just follow him no matter what. And then on the other side of the thing, you can look back and go, wow, Lord, I had no idea <laughs> that you were guiding and directing me all the way. I, I thought I was doing my own thing. And the Lord's going, yeah, I know you did. But I told you to go here. And I applied pressure over here to keep you from going there. And you went over there. And I had somebody there to protect you and to give you food and to give you nourishment. And that's the life of David. So Jonathan, verse 2, you know, he says, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing you know, small or great without first telling me. The thing is, is Jonathan didn't understand the depths of his father's heart. He didn't understand the bitterness and the hatred. He didn't think that his father was that far gone. Jonathan knew his father to a point, but he didn't know the depths of his father's heart. And honestly, how can we know someone else's heart when we barely know our own? Have you found that true of yourself? I know that of myself. I can talk a big game all I want, but until I'm in a circumstance, I have no idea how I'm going to respond. Have you heard somebody say, well, if that ever happened to me, I would do this. And then the Lord has a funny way of allowing that maybe to happen in the person's life, and then they didn't respond quite the way they thought. In fact, they may be surprised that they were one of the biggest cowards, or they might be surprised that they were one of the biggest heroes, and they were just being led at the moment. And so we, we, can't, we don't even know these things. We can talk all we want, but until it happens, we know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. So if I can't know my own heart, how can I know someone else's heart? How can Jonathan know his dad's heart? Even though he knew him better than anybody, you don't really know somebody. And I don't want to scare you tonight, but I, I've heard of situations like this where a woman would be married to a man and didn't even know that the man was a serial killer. Or she was married to a man for 10 or 15 years and didn't know that he was a pedophile. These things happen. And so do we trust in man or do we trust in God? Always trust in God. Always. You can love people. Trust is earned. I remember somebody telling me, well, you got to trust me. You're a Christian. And I said, yeah, I am a Christian and I don't trust you. I don't even know who you are. And I'm supposed to just, as a default, trust you? No. Trust comes with time. Trust is earned. No matter what, trust is earned. It doesn't mean I can't help somebody out when I don't know them. That's not what I'm talking about. When somebody says, well, you have to trust me. I know I don't have to trust you. I don't. I trust God. <laughs> Make that your thing, too. I don't mean to be cold or indifferent, but it's the truth. There's a, a verse in Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. We don't know what's in another man or a woman's heart. We're not capable of knowing. That's why we've got to be careful not to judge. 
and assume that we know something about somebody else, no matter how much information we got, because a lot of times we make judgments upon very little information, and one little piece of information can change everything. So how careful do we need to be in the church with each other? Do you realize how many churches have fallen apart and have been separated? You know, huge chunks of people you know, being removed from a church because they got angry because somebody judged them or said something harsh about them, and they came to a different judgment, and, they, and, they, and it happens all the time. It happens in every church, by the way, because we're human. And unfortunately, sometimes we're not very spiritual. (laughs) We're not really in tune with the Lord, but the more in tune we are with him, the less that stuff will happen. So let's all learn something by that. And there's also something in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord answers the question. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I'm the one who tests the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. How could Jonathan know his father like God knows him? He was still perplexed that he was coming after David. He couldn't understand it. No, that can't be true. Dad, really? King? Jonathan was a good man. He was naive. He was much older than David, too. But he was a naive man. But he was a good man. He was a very good man. He wasn't the kind of guy who plumbed the depths of wickedness like his father. I love what it says in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure. I like that. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. You know, it's a, have you been around somebody where every little thing that, um, you know, you could be looking at a piece of fruit and they would automatically be thinking something filthy? Or you, you could do, be out anywhere and all, their mind is always in the gutter. And so they interpret everything from the gutter. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've been around people like I've been one of those people, but I've been around people like that. And, be, and it's because of this, this verse, to the pure, all things are pure. Jonathan had a pure heart. He couldn't believe that his dad was like this. And you and I, we, don't, we always try to look at the best of people, and especially if your heart is pure. And that's a really wonderful thing, honestly. I'd rather think the best of people than think the most evil things. I think God would have us view people that way, but always be on your guard, right? We're supposed to be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. And we have to be discerning. So verse 3, it says, Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your sight. And, and, and finally, you know, David says, Truly as the Lord lives, there, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And I, I think of that. I think of what an amazing relationship these two men had. A really amazing, again, very rare. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity, but a friend loves at all times. Have you had a friend like that, like Jonathan? Ladies, have you had a girlfriend like Jonathan? Guys, have you had a a friend like that? Is willing to do anything. They're willing to do all things. A friend loves at all times. A true friend is somebody like Jonathan who, when David was on his mountaintop, he was right there with him, congratulating him and, and enjoying the victory of the slaying of Goliath. And when David was in the depths 
And he was completely despondent and, and in fear and, and lying to cover things up. He would be right there with him. He would be right there with him. And see, that's what a friend does. A friend, a friend loves at all times, not just when things are going well. And boy, does that really challenge me about the type of person that I should be. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and certainly Jonathan was one of those men for David. His own brothers didn't care about him at this time. And later on, David would even have his brothers in his cabinet. Did you know that? Later on, David would have his older brothers, his older brothers, serving in the kingdom in Judah when he finally becomes king. And what grace when his, father, when, when his brothers ridiculed him. But yet Saul's son, Jonathan, the heir apparent to the throne, the one who could jeopardize his own, you know, by, by normal ways of doing things, he would be the next king once Saul died. But Jonathan didn't care about the throne. He knew who the throne belonged to. It belonged to David. And boy, that's, that really fried Saul. So David said, verse 5, to, David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. This idea of the, of the new moon, it was, a, it was a feast that they would have. They would have burnt offerings. Um, you can look at Numbers 28, verses 11 through 15, and it kind of details what, this, the, what that, that offering is and what that feast is. It's... And uh, it goes into it there, but basically they're, they're sacrificing uh, bulls and lambs and, um, and, and drink offerings. But notice, until the third day at evening, but let me go, David says, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And when I think of the third day, what do you think of? Just coming off of, of Resurrection Sunday, I think of Jesus on the cross and the victory that he obtained on the cross. He alone has the keys of death and Hades. He, came, he was victorious over those things on the third day. And while it was a victory for Jesus, it's also going to be a victory for David, as we're going to see in this chapter. But it's going to look a little different. David would learn that through all the relationships that he had, that the Lord was the only one, his only, save, his only Savior, and what a great place it is to come to a place where you realize that all my help, my only help, comes from God. That is a victory, folks, because forever we are trying to prove that we don't need God and we rely upon the arm of the flesh. And sometimes that's our own human beings, our own fellow brothers and sisters. But see, we are pale in comparison to Jesus. While it is good for us to help our brothers and sisters, it is good. There are times when they are seeking for our help, and the, and the place that they really need to be is at the throne themselves. They'll, they'll seek you out, and they'll cling to you, but the one they really need to be seeking out and clinging to is Jesus. And it can get unhealthy when a brother or sister attaches to you, and you are Jesus to them. Everything you say is like, oh, I need your help. I just need your help. And you're like, hey, listen, listen, go to the Lord. No, I need you. I need you. You, you know, you're the one I call at midnight and talk to till three in the morning. You're the one who I, you know, I, I dream about. I, you know, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. These things happen. <laughs> but what they need is not you. 
They don't need you and me. They need Jesus. Always point them to him and get out of the way. Otherwise, you're gonna, they're going to put up candles next to you. And trust me, none of us are that holy, including myself. I'll be the first one to say that. There's no one like Jesus. No one like him. He just loves us. So it's going to be a victory for David because he's going to learn that lesson. And you know, even though none of us would choose to go into the depths and, and go through this hardship, God will often bring his servants and saints to these places to get us to focus on him. And why? So that we might grow. The way to growth and victory is often through pain and hardship. I know that to be true in my own life. I always, I find myself growing more when I've been in the furnace of affliction, when everything around me is just caving in on me and it drives me to my carpet on my floor and I'm, and I'm crying convulsively and I'm asking God to help because I don't have a clue of what's going on. I don't have a clue of how to get out of it. I want to get out of it. I don't even know how to get out of it. It's too much for me. How many Psalms have been written by David as he was being hunted by Saul? Some of the best literature, some of the best worship songs have been written when he was running for his life from a madman. The way to growth and victory is often through pain and hardship. But notice in verse 6, if your father misses me at all, uh, David says to Jonathan, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. There is no record in the scripture that David actually went to Bethlehem for the sacrifice. It could be that he did go. We don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic about it. But I find it interesting that David here is very possibly lying. He's very possibly telling Jonathan to lie to the king. Lie to him. Tell him I went to Bethlehem. And, you know, Jonathan probably, you know, I don't know, you know, this is a funny thing between people who love each other. Sometimes they'll, they'll lie to, to, to help you, you know. But we've got to be really careful about that. But notice that because of David's fear, which is certainly warranted, he may have encouraged Jonathan to do the same things. And isn't it true that when people, when we are in a great distress, we often do some pretty strange things? Have you done strange things when you're under a lot of duress, when you're under a lot of stress? I know I have. Why? Because we don't know ourselves like we think we do. And then we get into a situation, we find us doing things, and then afterwards you're thinking, you're like, what was I thinking? Why did I respond that way? Why did I do that? See, when we are in distress or feel threatened or pressed to do something quickly, this is when we need to be especially careful. The devil loves these situations for Christians. That's one of his greatest traps. Do it now. You got to do it now. You got to make a decision now. You're going to die if you don't make up your decision now. Have you been in a situation like that? Even Christians telling you, you got to do it. You got to make the decision now. You got people, family, wives, kids screaming, you got to make the decision now. And you're like, no, I'm not going to make the decision now. Let me pray for heaven's sake, but it'll never come back again. You'll miss the opportunity. Well, if it's God's will, he's going to bring it back. Do you believe that? I do. I mean, don't get me wrong. If your daughter is standing in the street and there's a bus coming, by all means, get her out of the street. Don't wait. I'll pray about that and 
find out if it's a good idea. No, you go and rescue your daughter. But there's times when we're not in situations like that, but yet the devil loves to get us to make the decisions now because then he traps us. And he does it all the time. He does it with people in the world. They don't think. They don't pray. They just do. And then the bill comes due, and they're like, oh, I'll just put it on my credit card. I'll just pay for it this way. I'll get rid of it this way. And then, then they're enslaved to that. And then they got to do something else. Then they gotta do, and then pretty new, you're, you're just tied in the knot. You're like a ball of yarn that the devil's playing with like a cat. The devil loves to get us to do this. But we'll see that this won't be the last time David lies to get out of a situation. And, and I love the fact how honest the scripture is. It doesn't tell us that, you know, David was this wonderful, honest man all the time. It tells us the reality of who he was. And yet he was chosen by God, even in his adultery and murder. God, you know, you'd think that he would be done with. That God would say, you know what, I knew that was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. And, and yet God, in his grace, still allows him. He forgives him, and, and David repents. That's a, that's a big difference, folks. Do you understand? It's not the mistakes that we make. It's not the things that happen. It's what you do with it. Do you continue in the sin or do you repent of the sin? If you repent of the sin, then you've learned something. Then that wasn't for naught. You know what I mean? And see, David was one of those individuals. When he made a mistake, he, he owned it, he repented of it, and that's how God could use him. When Saul made a mistake, he just continued per, 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 you know, perpetual kind of thing, is, and it just kept getting the better of him. Kept getting the better of him. But verse 7, it says, if he says, it is well, your servant will be made safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. And so this is sort of like a fleece that, they, that David and Jonathan throw out to one another. If he says this, then we'll know that everything's okay. If he does this, then that means something else. When in reality, they really don't know for sure, but they're, they're taking some pretty, guess, some pretty good guesses. I wouldn't encourage fleeces, by the way. If you're the type of person who's, who does that often, God allowed it in a couple, a couple instances in people's life to bolster their faith when it was kind of weak. You know, but some people make this kind of thing as something they do all the time. I, I would discourage you to do that. Just trust the Lord and ask him. And you may have to step out in faith and, and, and pray and seek him. So verse 8, Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, Jonathan, David says, then kill me yourself, or why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for I, if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't I have told you, David? And again, what great love between these two men. I mean, David, Jonathan has everything to gain if David goes away, or so he thinks. But Jonathan knew that the, th- it, it, the throne didn't belong to him. He knew that even his father, it really didn't belong to him either. Genesis 49 verse 10 says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It didn't say the scepter won't depart from Benjamin. Saul is a Benjamite. Jonathan is a Benjamite. No, it was to Judah and David So therefore, in verse 9, he says, But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by you, wouldn't I tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And, and we're going to see here in verse 11 through verse 23 uh, another vow or a covenant that David and Jonathan are going to enter into. They make three covenants in their relationship with each other. The first one 
was in chapter 18 in verses 1 through 4, where after David slew Goliath, David and Jonathan's heart were knit together. They were both men of faith. David admired, or Jonathan admired David so much so, and they made a covenant with each other. And we're going to see another covenant here in verses 11 through 23. And then later on in, ver- in chapter 23, the very last time that they meet together, and it was by chance, well, I say chance with an asterisk, it wasn't, they, they didn't know that that would happen, that they make another vow, just reestablishing what they had said before. But in verse 11, it says, Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go into the field. So both of them went into the field, and Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father, and what that phrase means is when I've searched him out. That's really what it means. When I've examined him and searched out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward you, David, and I do not send you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he was with my father. And so... And you shall not only, not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still yet live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And this is interesting. So he's saying, David, we're going to part. We're probably never going to see each other again. But if we do... Don't be my enemy. I'm not going to be your enemy. And in fact, whatever happens, tell me that you'll take care of my family, that you won't go after them and kill them all, which is typical for kings. When a a new king comes in town, he wipes out the old family. It's very common. He's saying, David, don't do it. And David said, I won't do it. I won't do it, Jonathan. And we're going to see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David follows through on that promise. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, you remember? And when he was young, when he was five years old, and we haven't gotten to this event yet in the book of, um, of Samuel, but later on in chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan are going to die in battle. And Mephibosheth was five years old at the time. And the nurse was holding uh, Mephibosheth, and when they heard news that Jonathan and Saul had died, his father and his grandfather, she got up to run with him, and she dropped him, and it must have broke his leg or did something so much so that he became lame, and he couldn't walk again. But David, in 2 Samuel 9, he takes care of Mephibosheth. He, he comes through with this promise, that, this oath that he made with Jonathan. And he not only did that, but he let him eat. Mephibosheth would eat at David's own table. He would restore his family's land to him, provide him with servants to take care of his crops and and take care of him. And again, what a wonderful character David had. Wonderful character. And I love that. Let us be people who are true to our word. There used to be a day when a word between two men or two women that would be their bond. That, that there, wouldn't, there wouldn't even be need for contracts. A man could look at another man and shake his hand in the presence of a couple people, or even without uh, uh, in the presence, and it would be done. And they would follow through on that. Not anymore. We become such vile truce breakers. The devil has created havoc in the human race. That's why it's 
necessary. It's, it's needful. We must be born again because that's who we are outside of Christ, a bunch of rebels, rebels. And I was one of them. I remember my old life. I remember the way I was. Do anything to get ahead. Such were some of us. Amen. So Jonathan, verse 16, made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And so now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says this about their friendship, about the love they had. It was a song that David wrote when Jonathan and Saul died, and part of it was uh, in verse 26 of 2 Samuel 1. It says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. This is David's song. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. That's pretty extravagant. That's a holy love, folks. That is amazing. Amazing love. It was a holy, pure love, too. It was a good thing. Then Jonathan said to David, verse 18, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone Ezel. Ezel means departure. It was named that because this is going to be the stone where Jonathan and David would depart from one another and at that point, again, they, they, they had no intention, no thoughts of ever seeing each other again until the kingdom. That's why I labeled this passage, until we meet again in the kingdom. David and Jonathan knew that we're probably not going to see each other, and that's what made this whole thing so bittersweet. I want you to see that tonight as we read it. It's really touching moment in David's life and Jonathan's life. He says, then I will shoot arrows, uh, uh, Jonathan said to David, then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. Verse 21, and there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, go get them and come, then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if you say to this young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you have, um, you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. <laughs> what an amazing thing. And so David and Jonathan, uh, here they concoct this plan that they, they'll be able to communicate, that Jonathan will be able to communicate whether David is supposed to come back and everything is fine or just the opposite. That he should leave and flee because my father Saul is going to kill you. And so they, they make this. So then, verse 24, David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. And nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. He's thinking that maybe something happened where, you know, David was um, unclean, you know, physically or something like that, or even sexually or something. Uh, Leviticus 15 uh, verses 2 through 16 gives the, the different things that could cause something like that. But they'd be unclean for a day, and they'd have to wash their clothes and bathe. So that's what Saul's thinking. But then in verse 27, and it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, where, where, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? 
And again, notice how he belittles him. He doesn't say David. He doesn't give him the proper dignity of saying who he is. The son of Jesse. It's like, he just, you know, whoever. What's his name again? You know, it's kind of like that kind of attitude. You know, Saul always was uh, pulling himself or pushing himself up and wanting to decrease David in any way. That's why he wanted to kill him. He was jealous of him. So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission for me to go to Bethlehem. And here is where the lie comes out. And this was a prearranged lie, and it's a topic, honestly, that's difficult. You know, is it permissible to lie, to protect life, and to protect the innocent? Although lying is a sin, (laughs) I believe there are situations that warrant it to protect the innocent and to protect a life. Think of what Rahab did when she brought in the two spies, hid them under the sheaves on the top of her roof before, as they were spying out the land, those two, those two men. While they were still hiding up, up top, men came to the door and said, where are the two men that came? Oh, they slipped away. You better go catch them. They're probably, you can probably gain on them if you go now. She lied to protect them. Was it a sin? Yes. But, but God, <laughs> I, I think, and here's my perspective, folks, and, and, and you know there's, there's times like that where we have to do that. I would rather lie and protect an innocent, especially when it comes to life and death, and ask God to forgive me afterwards than to let that lie, innocent life die in the hands of an evil person. You know, think how many times it happened in Nazi Germany when Corey Ten Boom, as they were hiding in the secret place, they had that false wall, remember? What happens if one of them said, I, there's a false wall there, go behind the wall. Yeah, you're not lying, but now you just caused a family to lose their life, innocent people. I would rather protect them and then say, God, I lied, and I would do it again, but forgive me. <laughs> you may differ, and that's okay, but that's where I stand. And uh, lying is always a sin. It is. But I think there are times where it's warranted in situations like, um, like Rahab, for instance. I don't know so much about David. I mean, David wasn't any, he thought he was in mortal danger. Um, but anyway, God is, he works in the hearts of men. And it's a difficult topic. I won't, I, I won't uh, lie to you in that. It's, it's a very difficult thing. But I think you understand what I'm talking about. Or at least I hope you do. So, and he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice. So Jonathan's telling Saul this, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. So he he tells the the king this lie. And then Saul's anger was aroused, aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman! Did I not, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to your shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Well, he's a really conflicted man. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can try to cover up all we want. We can try covering it up, but eventually our real heart will expose us. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. We, we talk about the things that are really important to us. 
And you spend any time with somebody, and you, you, you get to find out who they really are. You get to find out what really makes them tick. It's interesting that Saul is not only angry with Jonathan, but he also derides, derides Jonathan's mother. Ahinoam was her name. And in the Middle East, to speak poorly of someone's mother in this way was the ultimate in disgrace. It was just something you, you never did. And so it, and, uh, and there's a possibility that maybe, again, we, don't, we can't prove this, so that, you, know, you can't build doctrine upon this, but it's possible that Jonathan and maybe his mother felt the same way, that Saul was coming unhinged. We don't really know. But notice what he said to Jonathan. He says, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Saul is sort of giving Jonathan an ultimatum, isn't he? It's either the kingdom, Jonathan, the kingdom and the throne, or your friendship with David. What's it going to be? It can't be both. You have to make a decision. And he's giving him an ultimatum. What's it going to be, Jonathan? And for Jonathan, the matter had already been established a long time ago. When he saw David come off the battlefield with Goliath's head in his hand, Right then, he said, that's the man I'll follow. <laughs> that's the man I'm going to follow. Saul was coming unhinged. But Jonathan was not eager to have the throne of his father. He was more willing to be subordinate to David, the rightful heir. In Psalm 75, it says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And that's just the truth. And Jonathan certainly knew that. So, he says, Send and bring him to me, Saul says, for he shall surely die. Didn't he make a, a covenant? Didn't he make a vow in chapter 19, verse 6? Didn't we just read that? What did he say? He said to Jonathan, he said, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And he swore this. So now he's a, he has, vows me nothing to Saul, and such is true of a man who is given over completely to anger and giving over to malice and given over to jealousy and rage. His oaths meant nothing. Jesus told us not to vow. He said, Again, you've heard it was said, this is in Matthew 5, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Whatever is more than this is from the evil one. It's better not to make a vow than to vow. And not follow through. So Jonathan answered, verse 32, and said to his father, he said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Isn't that amazing? He would be willing to throw the spear at his own son. He was so filled with anger and rage. Even anybody allied with David was a threat to him. <clears throat> and he wanted to seek to kill them. That's when you know things have gotten way too far out of hand. That's when you know you better stop, drop, and pray. <laughs> stop, drop, and pray. So Jonathan arose, verse 34, from the table, notice, in fierce anger, and I would be too, 
He rose in fierce anger. Not only did he insult his mother, he insulted the man he really loved. And he was just breaking his oaths that he had made. And Jonathan's looking at his father going, what is... You've become everything that I would not want to be. I mean, he didn't say that, but his rage showed that. You know, you talk about my mother like that. You talk about David like he's done nothing. He's done everything for you. You haven't had to do anything. He would do everything for you. And now you're going to kill me? (laughs) So he was in fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. So then he said to the lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow behind you or beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, don't delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. He was completely oblivious to this plot that he and David had made. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. So then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, and just picture this in your head. You know, David is in Israel, in the fields, there's all kinds of caves and rocks and places to hide in different places. The terrain is really wonderful and easy to hide especially when you're in the area that David is in. It's a very interesting place. And this young kid was unaware of the signals that, that were, the, the communication that was happening, and it had to be that way. So he, he gathers the arrows. The signal's been given, and David, I'm sure, is behind the rock or wherever he was, and he's just, his head is hanging low, and he sees the kid take off, and Jonathan comes over. And think of this. I mean, This is one of the most touching passages, I think, in the Scripture. One of the most touching ones. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, and he fell on his face to the ground. He bowed down three times. And this bowing down three times was an acknowledgement of the prince's authority over David. Even though David would ultimately have authority over him not too many years from then, And certainly, Jonathan would die with his father, of course. But David was willing to submit to this man, even though that man was willing to submit to David. Isn't that kind of interesting? They both loved each other enough. That is really something, folks. You know, if you get a friend like that, hang on to him. Do everything you can to to encourage that kind of friendship. It's, It's just so rare today. It's just so rare So they kissed one another, and they wept together, and David more so. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And so he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And you just, you think of this, it's just an amazing chapter of just this wonderful friendship. And, and Jonathan being so naive to, about his father and really the character of his father. So much to learn there. So much to learn there about our own selves and how we would respond. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. How would you respond 
knowing that you're the king's son, that when the king dies, you're probably going to get the throne. And Jonathan could have been completely somebody different. He could have been a power-hungry mongrel like somebody else. He could have been that way. And he could have killed David. It's a mystery, isn't it? It really is a mystery how God works all this out. And all of this, all these things were hinged. So many things could have changed had it not been for this great friendship between Jonathan and and David. Again, cherish those relationships, folks, with your family, your friends, your whoever it is. Don't lose sight of them. Try to heal them. Have you hurt somebody? Go to them. Tell them. Try to win them back. We, we don't do that too much anymore. When we have a problem, we run away. It happens in churches, too. You hurt my feelings, I'm gone. I'm going to the next church. And they take the hurt with them. And then they go to that church, and they have this bitterness of soul, and they hurt somebody over there. Well, I'm leaving this church, and they go somewhere else. And they do the same thing. And they just keep hopping around, hopping around, taking their wicked heart wherever they go, And they never deal with it. They never deal with it. So important for us to do that. Even regardless of friendships, because who is the friend that sticks closer than a brother to us? It's Jesus. And he wants to continue to mold and shape us. He wants to sanctify us. And isn't that what it really is, sanctification? It's coming to terms with who I really am and who God is and the great gulf between and then resting in him, trusting in him, and saying, Lord, change me. And, and once you're saved and you got the Spirit of God dwelling in you, now you have the ability for the first time in your life to really resist. You have the power to resist. You don't have to sin. And when you do, you confess it, and he's faithful and, 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 and trustworthy to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, isn't he? And I love that about the Lord. That's the way he is. He loves this idea of friendship, and he loves us more than, you could, than any of us can possibly imagine. I love the love of God. It's something I don't deserve. It's something I could never deserve. But when I see a relationship like this with Dave and Jonathan, you know, they're, they're really, from this point, they, they really, they're really believing until we meet again in the kingdom, David, as they were at that rock out in the field. That's why David wept so hard. They knew this is the day that they had to part, and they would probably never see each other again. They do see each other one more time. Jonathan seeks him out while he's on the run from his father. We'll see that in chapter 23. But it's a brief thing. And then after that, they don't see each other ever again. They're in front of each other right now, though. Jonathan died in battle, and so did David. And I believe Jonathan was a believer. And David, of course, he's in glory. And they are together serving their king. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example. Lord, I confess I've never had a, uh, never had a friend like this. I, I think that there may have been people in my life that would have liked to have had that kind of friendship, Lord. And for whatever reason, Lord, I just was not quite there. 
and only you know the reason for these things. But Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, that that we would, in order to be friendly, we have to be a friend. In order to have a friend, we have to be friendly. Lord, help us to, to love people and to grow in these friendships and this fellowship that you've called us, that we could walk in the light as, as you are in the light, Lord, and that we can have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Lord, be the light of, our, of everything we are. Keep us, Lord. And thank you again for this passage, and teach us, Lord, again. Continue to teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.